Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. at the headings in your Bible. So if you have turned there to Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 17 through 48, there is quite a bit. Uh, And I remember back at the start of this uh, calendar year, when we were thinking about this uh, sermon series and thinking, okay, how do we go through the book of Matthew, give every part of the book of Matthew sort of its due, what it deserves, but also go at a somewhat decent pace, right? We could spend years going through this as each of those headings anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, each of those could probably be a sermon in and of itself. But as you'll see, each of these sections, starting in verse 21, is going to follow a pattern, and that pattern is related to what we see in verses 17 through 20. The pattern of teaching in this section tells us a lot about God, it tells us a lot about His holiness, and how we must relate to His holiness. And again, fair warning, these sections are very convicting. I have a hard time seeing how anyone can walk away from reading passages such as these without some conviction of sin. Now, for me, this week involved a lot of repentance. And I don't presume to know any of your hearts, but the topics I just listed, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love of enemies, I'm going to go out on a limb and suspect that most of us are imperfect in at least one of these areas. I know for myself, I know there are many. So let's dive into Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading verses 17 through 20. They say this, they say, Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, for some context, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. In the last two weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes at the beginning of this chapter. We've looked at being salt and light. And now Jesus assures them that he is not going to abolish the law and the prophets. So why would he say this? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, Graham's sermon, as he opened the Sermon on the Mount, we talked a little bit about the similarities between Jesus and Moses, right? You're supposed to be thinking here, he goes up to the mountain to hear God's word, and he's like Moses, but of course a better Moses. So one might suspect, if you're reading this, that Jesus is going to give them some new law, right? Moses came down and gave them a law, so Jesus is going to go up and he's going to abolish that one and give them a new one. Well, there is a sense, as we'll see, in which Jesus gives a new teaching in in a sense, But he's clear that he's not abolishing the law. So Jesus begins to teach and he says this. Again, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but he has come to fulfill them. So what might that mean? Like we can usually understand what it means to fulfill a prophecy, right? The prophet says the Savior will be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Jesus born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Boom. Prophecy fulfilled. We understand that. But when he says the law and the prophets to be fulfilled, that might be confusing. Especially when we just fairly recently did a study in Galatians where we talked about we're not under the law anymore, we're free from that, we're not bound to these Old Testament regulations. 
So wouldn't it be right then, in a sense, to say that Jesus abolished it? What does this mean that he fulfilled it? So I'll spare you some of the details, but a lot of people have written a lot of things on what that word fulfill means. But I think ultimately what he's talking about is that he's going to bring it to its proper end or its proper goal, right? He's taking the Old Testament, and anytime they say law and prophets, they're usually sort of a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says, I'm bringing it to its proper end. I'm fulfilling it. I'm bringing it to its, its main goal, right? What is the goal of the Old Testament? Well, Jesus is ultimately what it points towards. And this helps us understand why maybe certain Old Testament laws are still in effect, in a sense, and some aren't, right? Why didn't any of us bring in an animal to sacrifice this morning? Well, God clearly commands animal sacrifice if you read the Old Testament. It's pretty clear the way God wants to be worshipped, and there's animal sacrifice, so why did none of us do that? Well, the proper end of that law was that sin is atoned for through sacrifice, and ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than of any animal. So that has been fulfilled in Jesus, right? Its proper end, its proper goal is fulfilled in Jesus. But other Old Testament commands, things like loving your neighbor, right, that's obviously still in effect. Nothing about Jesus' life or ministry would nullify that, and as we're going to see today, in many ways that is only intensified in the teaching of Jesus, There's a New Testament scholar uh, I've listened to and read sometimes, D.A. Carson. He says, Jesus does not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that toward which it points. The detailed prescriptions of the Old Testament may well be superseded. That's because whatever is prophetic must in some sense only be provisional. But what's prophetic discovers its legitimate continuity in the happy arrival of that which it is pointed. And the Old Testament points to Jesus and is fulfilled in him. So we see in verse 18 that Jesus believes all of Scripture to be important. It'll all be fulfilled, right? People wonder why we here have such a high view of the Scriptures. Well, because Jesus did. A dot, an iota will be, uh, not a dot or iota will go unfulfilled. A dot is, of course, just a dot. An iota, if you're familiar with Greek, it's just a little tiny letter. It's like Jesus saying the smallest little thing. Everything is going to be fulfilled. Every little bit. And so your view of Jesus and your view of the scriptures are going to be related. Jesus thinks these things are important. And the question is, do you agree with him? So he says, we must not relax even the smallest of the commandments. All of them are God's word. And like we said, we don't relax them. We ask how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfills them. Then he goes on to say that one's righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you're a first century Jew, this sounds crazy. The scribes and Pharisees are the ones who look the most righteous. If you're looking at people who are the ones who follow the law most strictly, who do all the things most strictly, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. If Jesus is talking about righteousness, wouldn't the scribes and Pharisees be the people who look the best? If if he says you have to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees, most people are probably thinking, okay, well, I'm doomed because they're the most righteous and apparently I'm supposed to be even better than them. So how can one have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees? What is this righteousness? And I want us to keep that question in mind as we go through each of these shorter sections. What is this righteousness Jesus is talking about? What does it consist of? What is the righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees? So let's look at the first little section here when Jesus will explain this. Verses 21 to 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Stop right there for a second. This is the pattern we're going to see. It's throughout this whole section, verses 21 and 22, 27 and 28, 31, 32. You can see it throughout. Jesus starts with, you have heard X, but I tell you Y. And the uh, you have heard that it was said is almost always either verbatim Old Testament uh, law or something very similar to it. Right here, he says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. Well, that's the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. In a minute, he's going to say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. It's commandment seven of the Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments. So Jesus is saying, you have heard these things, but I'm going to tell you this. So it goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So here Jesus demonstrates that the Old Testament law against murder, when taken to its proper end, or its intended goal, should result in a heart that's changed. Should result in a heart that doesn't harbor anger or bitterness towards others. Jesus takes it as a given that you'll know murder, actual physical, actual murder is wrong. But he's saying that if you think you're good because you harbor all that anger and resentment and rage and hate, but you don't actually cross the line to physical murder, he's saying that's still sin. It's not just external actions that are sinful, but the heart, the, the internal uh, motivations of the heart. If you have that anger and rage, but you stop short of actual murder, don't think that you've obeyed the law. Don't think that you're holy. He says you're not. See, Jesus here does not relax the command. Remember he said, he who relaxes the least of these commands uh, will be least in the kingdom, right? He's not relaxing the command. If anything, he's making it more difficult. He demonstrates that those who may, might obey the law to the letter, like the scribes and Pharisees, right? They obey the law, the letter of the law, but their hearts are far from it. He's showing that they are far from holy. And I think if we take Scripture seriously, we have to remember that not all forms of anger are wrong. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gets pretty angry. He overturns the tables. He gets very mad in the temple. But why was Jesus angry? He was angry because, in that context, the worship of God was being desecrated. His anger was on God's behalf for God's glory. And, look, I know I'm guilty of this. Anytime I'm angry, I like to think it's for, like, really righteous reasons. Like, I'm mad because, you know, that person cut me off on the highway. I'm mad because God's honor is impugned. Probably not. I'm mad because I want to get somewhere quickly, and they just uh, pulled out in front of me. Right? So, yes, it's true that there is righteous anger, but I think often, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, that is usually not why we're mad. We're mad because we want what we want, and we want it now. The point is that we should cultivate hearts of forgiveness and reconciliation towards our neighbor. This is why the text goes on to give examples of someone going out of their way to be reconciled. A Christian longs to be reconciled to those around him or her. We shouldn't let rage and anger fester, <clears throat> and we shouldn't let bitterness grow. It says, come to terms quickly with your adversary, and if you're giving a gift and remember there's something between you and someone else, leave it and go. Be reconciled. And this is hard. I know for myself, 
there are times when I can find myself just really angry at the drop of a hat. If I'm extra tired or stressed, sometimes it feels like anger is just there brimming on the edge, right? I'm like, a, if you take a fresh water bottle and open it, that's like me. Like, if you shake the water bottle a little bit, what's going to come out? Water, because that's what's inside. When I'm like really stressed and frustrated, I might not see it on the outside, but if I get shaken a little bit, what comes out? Well, anger, frustration, because that's what's in my heart, right? What's in your heart comes out. Now, the scripture doesn't say, okay, you can be angry if you're a little stressed. If you're a little tired, sin is fine, right? No, there should be self-control. But here's the thing. Even if there were no outburst, even if no one else knew that I was angry, the question would be, how is your heart? That's the question Jesus is asking. So if no one sees your rage, if people can't see anger or fury rising up in you, are you then without sin? No. We should tend to our hearts. He makes a similar point as we go on in verses 27 through 30. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, in the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So here Jesus tackles the command against adultery. Once again, he doesn't abolish or minimize it. The actual physical act of adultery is still wrong. But what is the proper end or goal or intended meaning of this? How is it fulfilled? Once again, it's with a pure heart. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He demonstrates that sin, again, is internal and external. And I think it's important to point out that, yes, Jesus directs his command at men, lusting after women. And I do think maybe historically men are more prone to visual lust. But when we uh, look at the way Jesus talks later in verse 32 and other places, I think it's quite clear that sexual sin, which is what he has in mind here, is universal, right? It's not just uh, men who can sin in this way. But like anger and murder, right, if you never commit the actual physical act of adultery, that doesn't mean you're good. You might look good on the outside, and you might look clean in this area, but the question is, where is your heart? I do want to spend just an extra minute or two on this one. Look, sin has always been sin. It always is. There's nothing new under the sun. But there is a sense in which this particular area of lust, of sexual sin, does have a special hold over our culture today. Lust and sexual sin are as old as Bible times, but there is a sense in which it is easier and easier today to sin in this way, and it's easier and easier to hide it. It's easier and easier to look good in this area on the outside while letting lust uh, fester in the heart. So I urge you again, tend to your heart. Don't let it fester. It's deadly, and over time, it will eat away your spiritual vitality, and it will harden your heart against God. Listen, this is a really hard command to not lust, right? Just to not have any sexual, uh, uh, impure sexual desires in your heart, right? That's very difficult. You might be thinking, how would I even start? How, where would I even begin? Right? Jesus didn't understand our culture. Jesus didn't understand how prevalent internet pornography is. Jesus didn't understand how much our culture is just sort of casually sexualized in so many ways. Jesus, if he were here today, he would, he would lighten us a little bit, right? But I think not. What do verses 29 and 30 say? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your 
right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, for starters, no, I do not counsel any of you to mutilate yourselves. Not, not the point. Even if you gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands, your heart could still be sinful. What is the point? The point is that fighting sin might involve really difficult, even really seemingly extreme steps. I know someone who struggled in this area for many years. Ultimately, he had to take a step to severely, severely limit his time online with super strict rules and basically no social media presence. I'm not saying everyone has to do that to be pure. But what I'm saying is that this person eventually realized that they faced the choice between a vibrant online presence and holiness. And that seemed extreme, but ultimately, holiness was worth it. I have another really, really close friend, uh, known him for a long time, and his cell phone is an old flip phone. It's an old, like, flip phone. And I'm like, dude, it's not 2005 anymore. Why do you have this phone? I would kind of give him a hard time. And as we got to know each other fairly well, I found out that he had been uh, addicted for a long time to internet pornography. And ultimately, he decided that among other steps in his life, he just couldn't trust himself with a smartphone. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to get rid of their smartphone. I have a smartphone. But the point was he ultimately reasoned that if my smartphone is going to cause me to sin, better to cut it off and throw it away than to risk holiness. The point I'm making is not that you can't have social media or you can't have smartphones. That's not the point. The point is when you're faced with the commands of Christ and a genuine desire to be holy, nothing should be off the table. Jesus makes clear that when he, this, when he suggests gouging out eyes, cutting off limbs, right, we should, be whatever, we should do whatever it takes to be holy. And I don't want the whole sermon to be about lust and sexual sin, but I, do want, I don't want us to explain away verses 29 and 30 with a wave of the hand and say, well, obviously Jesus isn't actually asking me to do that, so this is no big deal. We should recognize there is intensity in this, uh, and these words are very serious. And I do want to extend an invitation to those who might be struggling in this area. Our church has a group of men meeting to fight this sin together, you know, on Friday evenings, and the group is confidential. So if you come and you desire holiness, we're not going to air anyone's dirty laundry to the church. If you're interested in something like that, please talk to myself, or I know Graham's with the children today, he's sort of been heading it up. And by the way, the group is for men, but again, that's not to say women can't and don't deal with this sin as well. If you do, I highly encourage you to find an older godly woman here who you can talk to. Know that there are godly women in this church who want to help you fight for holiness. In this area, I'm always reminded, sin grows in the dark, and it will only continue to grow in the dark. Repent, confess, and long for holiness. But we need to move on. Verse 31, it says, It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. In, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses gave them the concession. He's, because they were, had hard hearts, he said, you can give your wife a certificate of divorce. If you Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the same pattern. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Most commentators point out that in the first century, uh, there was a big debate here among Jewish rabbis. There was sort of two schools looking at this section in Deuteronomy. Some would say it was just a concession, and you can only be divorced if there's marital unfaithfulness. The other side said, hey, Moses said you could give your wife a certificate of divorce, so if you want to divorce your wife, go for it. I read a commentary this week by Daniel Aiken, uh, and I'm not going to quote at length but he gives a, a very long quote from this first century Jewish document, giving all the reasons 
why a man could divorce his wife. And frankly, if it wasn't so sad, it would be slightly comical. It's like if, you know, she burned dinner one too many times, boom, divorce. Or you know, eyebrows are too bushy, divorce. It's like the most random, random things. And the point was, men in this day could basically divorce their wives whenever they wanted. And similarly to that point, uh, adultery was seen primarily as a, a female sin, right? In those days, if adultery occurred, usually, even though this wasn't the way the law was written, usually a woman was punished more harshly. We see this, for example, in John chapter 8, when adultery happens, and you don't see them bring the, both of them, you see them just bring the woman. So the point, uh, or this is why most commentaries highlight the end of verse 32, right? Jesus shows that both sides who commit this sin are equally uh, wrong. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus very specifically uh, handles this issue. The Pharisees come to him and ask, uh, you know, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus points out that the reason Moses gave them this concession was because of their hard hearts. His point is that there is only one reason you should be able to get divorced, and that's unfaithfulness. Despite concessions that were made because of hard hearts, divorce uh, shouldn't be an option unless there is sexual immorality and unfaithfulness. So our talk today of sort of no-fault divorce, irreconcilable differences, these are foreign to Jesus' teaching. None of that's at all to say marriage is easy. Again, if we take the Bible seriously, we recognize that when two sinners come together, two people who are naturally selfish, two people who want to build their own kingdoms, there's going to be conflict. If you add in children who also are you know, selfish and want their own kingdoms, that just is like a tornado of selfishness and sin. I don't mean to be funny or glib, but it is really hard. In one sense, we can understand why people would want to run from this and cite irreconcilable differences, right? If I want my way, she wants her way, and we just keep wanting our way, ultimately that's going to become irreconcilable because we both want what we want. But what God has put together, let no man separate. Jesus doesn't give an easy out. He says, despite this concession that might have been made to them for their hard hearts in Deuteronomy, the fulfillment or the proper end of God's commands is that there wouldn't be divorce. And Jesus gives the only grounds for divorce as unfaithfulness. Let's go on to verse 33, oaths. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, this is interesting because the you have heard it is said is not a direct Old Testament quotation. Most people think it's a general paraphrase of Leviticus, Leviticus 19.12, which says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. But by Jesus' Jesus's day, we've talked a little bit about the Pharisees, they were sort of building up extra laws on top of what God's word had said. There's a whole system of oaths and levels of oaths that you could take, which is what Jesus is somewhat playfully mocking here, right? The religious leaders, if they sweared by God, well, that was really serious. If they swore by Jerusalem, okay, a little less serious. If they swear by their head, well, you know, who knows? And what Jesus is saying is that's ridiculous. God is in control of it all. Why would you swear by your head? You can't control your own head. You can't make a hair white or black. Don't play these word games. Just be trustworthy in your speech. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
ultimately, Jesus is saying, all your words, whether they're words that you swore by God, swore by Jerusalem, swore by your head, all your words, and all of them you're accountable before God. So just be honest, be dependable, be truthful to your word, and let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. And that's much easier said than done. But I think it really is that simple. We should be honest and dependable in our words, letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Let's go to verse 38. It says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So where might they have heard? You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, in Deuteronomy, in the law, it says, after talking about punishments for those in the Israelite community, it says, uh, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So in the Old Testament law, this idea was of equal or retributive punishment. So on the surface, what Jesus is saying here really does look like a contradiction of the Old Testament law. It really does like he's abolishing the law, right? If the Old Testament law we should, says we should have equal retributive punishment, why does Jesus amend this? Well, I think first it's helpful to note that in the Old Testament, the context is a court case. It's legal legislation for a just society. The idea is that if you get multiple witnesses convicting someone of a crime then their punishment should be equal to the crime. It's not meant in the realm of everyday interpersonal relationships. This is talking about court cases when someone has been convicted. So Jesus seems to be correcting this misunderstanding, taking this legal code and applying it to everyday interactions, right? It's the same for us. While I might have the legal right to do something, that doesn't always make it the right and moral thing to do. Jesus is saying that rather than seeking retribution, on those who sin against you, you should exemplify meekness. Remember the beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea here is that the follower of Jesus is not going to insist on his or her own right in the face of injustice, but will turn the other cheek, give their cloak, go the extra mile, freely give to those who would borrow. This passage is and will always be difficult to hear and apply. It fights hard against our human nature. I'll never forget the first time I heard it read. I was a kid, I was in my Sunday school class, and the teacher read this verse, and I thought, they have to be misreading this. That I can't, it can't actually say, if someone hits you like in the face, you should just turn and have them hit the other side. That makes no sense. That's what it says, right? The Bible can't say that, I thought. But it fights against us and our culture actually in other ways too, right? We should be aware that this passage has historically been used by some in power to keep those they're oppressing in bondage, right? And that also is wrong. Tyrannical government rulers, slave owners, abusers, right? They've used this passage to basically say that uh, God wants those whom they oppress to remain quiet and accept their fate. And that too is wrong, right? Verse 39 says, do not resist the one who is evil. It doesn't say evil is okay. Jesus and the scriptures as a whole, as a whole have much to say against those who would mistreat their fellow human beings. And it is true that this text but it is true that this text commands Christians to be willing to suffer at the hands of others. Doesn't mean we should shrug at evil. Doesn't mean we should let evil be okay. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't help those who are 
victims. When someone sins against you, just remember this. God says vengeance is mine. So we aren't to be those who seek retribution. Doesn't mean we shouldn't long to make our society more just. I think there's biblical warrant for us to do that. As Christians, let us search our hearts and recognize that the instinct we have for retribution, the instinct we have to get back at the person who's hurt us, um, that our desire to not turn the other cheek but to hit back and to give as little as possible, get as much as possible, these things are not of God. We should be generous. We should go above and beyond for others, even at our own inconvenience. So are we willing to be inconvenienced for others? We should go the extra mile. And once again, we're left, as with each of these, with the notion of a changed heart. So I want to ask again, how is your heart? Do you naturally seek retribution? Do you want vengeance if you've been hurt? Tend to your heart. Let's finish with verses 43 to 47. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Here, this final, you have heard, but I say section, Jesus gives what I think is one of his most difficult commands. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament will you actually read the words that love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some might say that it was implied in places, but ultimately, over time, the religious leaders had sort of added this. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We do that same sort of thing sometimes, right? We have some phrases like, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Heaven gained an angel today. God will never give me more than I can handle, right? These aren't actually in the Bible, but sometimes we say them as if they are. Jesus demonstrates that the proper end of the command to love your neighbor is that we be willing to love our enemy. He'll make this point even more clear later in the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And like the other sections, it goes directly against our nature. Like the command against retaliation, the command to love your neighbor, or sorry, to love your enemy is countercultural. Goes on to tell us that God allows the sun to rise on the evil and the good. God cares for all of his creation. And then Jesus draws a line between the way his people act and the way the world acts. Right? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same. You may be the nicest, the kindest, the meekest, the gentlest person to your best friends or to your family members. Who doesn't love those who love them? Who love them? Jesus is saying you might be the kindest, nicest person to those you like, but who isn't? Who doesn't love those who love them? It is perfectly normal for us to like people who like us. So if you love those who it's easy to love... What evidence is there that Jesus has changed you? I think that's his point, right? Everyone loves those who loves them. Everyone greets their friends and cares about those in their inner circle. What makes followers of Jesus distinct is that we not only love those who love us, but we also love our enemies. And that's difficult. That goes against uh, what the average person does, right? Everyone loves those who loves them, but Christians are to love their enemies. So as we close, having gone through each section, let us remember to tend to our hearts. 
If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Tend to your heart. Whether that's in the area of anger, as Jesus shows us that anger and bitterness in the heart is like murder. Whether that's in the area of lust, where Jesus tells us that lustful thoughts are equivalent to adultery. Or divorce, in which there's really only one possible grounds, and even that's not a necessity. Might be in the manner of speech and oaths, right? May we humbly let our yes be yes and our no be no. Or in terms of retaliation, Jesus showing us how difficult it is, it is to actually be meek and not seek retribution. Or in regards to loving our enemies, where Jesus shows us that what separates his children from those of the world is that they show love not only to those who love them, but to those who hate them. So at the end here, Jesus says one of potentially the most difficult verses in the scriptures, 548, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I started the sermon by talking a bit about that word fulfill in verse 17. What does it mean to fulfill the law and prophets? Right? What is that righteousness that's supposed to be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? What is the proper end of God's commands? The short answer is here. It is to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in external actions. Not murdering, not committing adultery, not, uh, not retaliating, getting divorced. But also perfection in internal thoughts. Anger, lust, desire for revenge, hatred. And if that seems, seems unrealistic, well... It should. Jesus shows us that perfection means more than just looking good on the outside. Perfection means a heart that is oriented towards God. And like I said, if we read each of these headings, I think I immediately know I'm guilty. I am not perfect, as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And this, then, is the critical question. If Jesus shows us that, perf uh, that to be perfect, we must have right actions and a pure heart, how can we ever be right with God? If God's standard is perfection, is there hope? How can we tell people, come as you are, when the standard is to be perfect? Let's let that sit for a second, right? Any sin, whether in actions, the heart, or the mind, is enough to separate us from God. That one angry outburst, that one you know, lustful thought, that one time where you really got back at someone, the person that you hate, those thoughts that you know are just wrong, but hey, they're just thoughts, right? Nobody sees any action from it. This is why the gospel is good news. See, if you think, hey, I'm not that bad, I don't really have any sin, then you don't see your need for a savior. If you're thinking, sure, I had some bad thoughts, but as far as others can see, I'm good. God will understand. Then the gospel seems unnecessary. But the good news of the gospel is that, yes, we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, but someone has lived that perfect life in our place. Jesus came to earth, and he was never sinfully angry. He did not lust after women. He didn't get divorced. He wasn't married, so he couldn't get divorced. He didn't take oaths. He didn't retaliate. And believe me, if anyone, humanly speaking, had a right to retaliate, right, it was Jesus. He loved his enemies. He even prayed for those who persecuted him, right? On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In each of these areas, in each one where we fall short, Jesus did not. He was perfect, and yet he was killed. His death on the cross paid the punishment for sin that we deserve. He took on our punishment, he took on our sin debt, and he paid it all. And after three days, he rose from the grave and defeated death. So it is by faith, then, that you can have Jesus' payment applied to your account, so to speak. By faith, you can have his righteousness, his perfection applied to you. 
You need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You can't do that. How do you get there? It's by faith in Jesus. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, who have said, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be saved. I know I'm imperfect, but I want to be free from sin. God will look upon you and instead of seeing your sinfulness, will see Christ's righteousness. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ today, I urge you to do so. When confronted with the reality of sin and the fact that it's not only in our actions, but it's in our hearts and minds, you should wonder how you can be right with a holy God. When you hear that you therefore should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that should be a little bit unsettling. That shouldn't make you feel good, right? But let it move you to cry out to Jesus in faith. And church, fellow believers, placing our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him for salvation is not a one-time thing where we can say a prayer and go back to sinning like we did before. No longer are we at the mercy of these sinful desires, this anger, lust, retaliation, hate for enemies. No, by the power of God's Spirit working in us, we can fight those sins. We don't fight thinking, well, I better do enough today or God's going to get mad again. No, we fight sin thinking, I love my Lord, I'm grateful for his work in my life, and I want to be close to him. There's a relationship between your proximity to God and your distance from sin. As you fight sin in actions, in heart and mind, seek to draw closer to the Lord, knowing that you are secure in his love and that you desire to be close to God. So let's not hear the command... Christians, to be perfect as unsettling. Let it be a reminder of your perfect Savior. Christian, when you read, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, know that someone was perfect for you. Let's recall the freeing truth of the gospel that by faith in Christ, we can now fight sin in God's power. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.